So I'd like to continue um, reflecting on the power of mindfulness. It's sort of a funny term. But it's, it's sometimes nice to talk about it that way because uh, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we actually want something powerful. <laughs> and uh, a lot of what we feel in life is helpless. And, uh, and then we come on retreat and we feel more helpless, <laughs> or at least some of the time, in moments. And then every once in a while, like earlier today, someone was sharing their experience with me, and uh, this person felt empowered by the practice, felt inspired and confident in the practice. And it's just touching this power of awareness, and, you know, we've uh, I've used, and Yanapanika Tara has used different metaphors to talk about how simple mindfulness is, but how powerful it is to tidy up the mind space, <coughs> or to strip our lives away, to strip um, complications or yeah, just the heaviness of our dramas. It strips it away, mindfulness does. I mean, one of the things we notice being on retreat now that we've been away from media for a few days, it's like uh, on Thursday noon or Thursday afternoon when we were driving here and listening to the news, <coughs> didn't the world seem amazingly complicated and a bit overwhelming? And uh, now, whenever all of that complication arises, that's just a thought in the mind. Now, I know that can strike us as like, oh yeah, but I'm just in denial. But that's, a, that's called worry or doubt. So we're not saying that the world is complicated. We're also not saying the world isn't complicated. We're just saying that in this moment, things are this way, this simple. And doubt is just doubt or that memory of the world being complicated, that's just a memory. So that's a bit of what I spoke about last night. And I mentioned, uh, and Yanapanika Tara mentioned about naming. But the whole naming process is, is basically acknowledging the simplicity of the present moment. It's just, and then you fill in the blank, it's just grief. It's just happiness, it's heaviness, it's buoyancy, it's just thoughts, thoughts about the world, thoughts about myself, thoughts about the person next to me, it's just thoughts. The next category that he mentions, remember there are four, pow or four aspects of this power, the power to tidy up, sort of move from the complexities of our self-centered dramas about our lives to the simplicity of, you know, the six sense gates being known. It's either sound or smell or taste or sight or tactile experience or thought being known. The world can't be more complicated than that in the presence of mindfulness. And so that kind of radical reduction is the first aspect of the power of mindfulness. The second that he talks about in this article is the non-coercive quality or the metta quality. But you know, often in Buddhism, love or loving kindness is really best described as the absence of aversion or the absence of fear in the heart. It makes it a slightly less of a tendency to get idealistic about love. It's not any less profound, but it might be more helpful to think of it that way. So instead of the mind or the quality of attention having a coercive aspect to it, a manipulative and aggressive, uh, um, like not wanting to see the whole truth, 
there's there's no spin, there's no coercion at all with whatever's being known. See, this is something we can reflect on, you know, even as I'm speaking tonight. Just as you're resting in the experience of the body and listening to the words, just to see that uh, that that kind of receptivity or that that quality of um, clarity, it has a non-coercive quality to it. Like we can uh, be receptive or be inclusive. So we're. Uh, when we think about love, it's the opposite of being afraid. When we feel love, we're not afraid. They don't co- they can't coexist in the mind at the same time. So when we're being receptive, it's not possible to be fearful and aversive. So we can notice that in moments of mindfulness that there is no aversion or fear. Now that doesn't mean that there is an aversion and fear being known. But knowing aversion is the aspect of receptivity. To know aversion means we're letting it be, or we're letting it in, or letting the fear in. That's an act of love, or non-aversion, to be receptive to the experience of fear, receptive to the experience of anger. So I'll share a little bit of what he says in this chapter few things that I, I found helpful. By the methodical application of bare attention, the basic practice in the development of right mindfulness, all the latent powers of non-coercive approach will gradually unfold with their beneficial results and their wide and unexpected implications. And this is the, this unexpected implication is really important. Maybe some of us have experienced this just in terms of our relationships where we've been, maybe not even in a, in a obvious way, just throwing somebody out of our heart or just being a little reserved with somebody, keeping our distance. And then, we just turn it around or we just flip that and for whatever reason maybe we see that they're just a suffering human being that our approach or our attitude about toward that person changes and it can be like night and day our relationship with that person even though it seemed like a very small movement in the heart and this is the same in our sitting practice or any aspect of our life where we, did, we can hardly notice, but there's some quality of aversion, or some quality of fear of not letting something in. And then we turn it, we flip that, we let it in, we allow, it, allow the heart to be intimate with this, and it sets in motion a whole sort of, you know how they talk about parallel universes, you know, every time we have a choice to go here or here, it's like a whole nother universe arises that's different than this one and that's how it is when we uh, allow you know a moment of mindfulness to arise then this this sort of non-aversion this love takes us in a different direction and so there's something uh, you know when we even when it's a small turn when we keep following that we end up in a completely different place, even though the initial movement was quite small. And this is something really doable. I see this a lot in my intimate relationship with Wynne, my wife. Because you know how it, well, some of you know how, know how it is where you can get into ruts in terms of how you interact around certain things. And not that, you know, it's necessarily bad or, or even, yeah, that someone on the outside would see it as bad. 
but there's just, you know, a kind of non-mindful, non-intimate way of being with another person. And then just changing a little bit, just like sometimes just slowing down a little bit when I'm connecting or talking with her. Or um, like really looking at her instead of, you know, just not even, but really just being there with somebody and looking at the person's eyes for a moment or touching. And uh, how that like, changes the day that we have together and maybe even the week just because it sets in motion a whole different reality. That simple sort of dropping of aversion or the uh, allowing mindfulness to rise. A moment. Of, mindfulness is a moment of intimacy. And then our response, whether it's a word or a touch or a gaze, then that, that response comes from that moment of non-aversion or that moment of mindfulness. Here's another paragraph. When faced by inner and outer disturbances, the inexperienced or unstructured beginner, uninstructed beginner, will generally react in two ways. I guess you wear my glasses. He will first try to shove them away lightly, but if he fails in that, he will try to suppress them by sheer force of will. But these disturbances are like insolent flies. By whisking, first lightly, and then with increasing vigor and anger, one may perhaps succeed in driving them away for a while, but usually they will return with an exasperating constancy, and the effort and vexation of whisking will have produced only an additional disturbance of one's composure. Satipatthana, or the practice of mindfulness, through its method of bare attention, offers a non-violent alternative to those futile and even harmful attempts at suppression by force. Successful non-violent procedure in mind control has to start with the right attitude. There must be the, the full cognizance and sober acceptance of the fact that these disturbing factors are co-inhabitants of the world we live in, whether we like it or not. Our disapproval of them will not alter the fact. With some, we shall have to come to terms. And concerning the others, the mental defilements, we shall have to learn how to deal with them effectively until they are finally conquered. So this is interesting because as I read a little bit more, you're, you'll get the sense, and this is, this is all over the place in the Buddhist teachings. And sometimes we can we can sort of dismiss it, you know, we say, well, the warrior was, I mean, the Buddha was raised in the warrior caste, you know, to be a prince and, and eventually a king and to lead his armies to do battle and things like that. So there's a lot of this kind of militaristic martial language in the suttas and the talks that the Buddha gave. But... I think there's more. It's more than just that, and uh, it's like a mother or a father. They're not afraid to do whatever it takes to protect their children, even to protect their children from themselves. To be to use sort of um, strong action, and so this is also true with what we clearly see as a harmful force in the mind. Sometimes the way love operates is in that really strong way. Love isn't always yielding. You know, sometimes love is you know, standing up and saying, no, or no, don't leave, or, uh, you know, I can't let you treat me that way. It's not, it's not going to happen. This is not going to happen like this. I won't accept this. So love, love means that the, our actions, our thoughts, are coming from letting life touch us. That's what love is. Love is that intimacy. It's like allowing things, to, allowing things in. And so whatever the response is, it's arising because we've allowed things in. 
we've allowed ourselves to be touched, to be undefended, and then we respond. And sometimes when we see our child, you know, that sort of classic example of about to be injured, you know, when we feel that loss, the imagined loss or whatever it is that we see in that moment, then we respond with love, which is to, you know, grab the child or to try to stop the injury from happening. So, given that, you know, generally the way the Buddha would teach is that we would use the, in terms of being mindful and in terms of meeting, as Nyanapanika Terra calls them, the insolent flies in our lives, the disturbing things in our lives, because these are, of course, the places where non-aversion or love is really the question, like how do, what does love look like when there's a disturbing noise or a disturbing mind state? Or just random thoughts, you know, just sort of distractions. And generally, the way the Buddha taught is we use, we use uh, the amount of, of uh, willful action or willfulness or the, the sort of size of the response is, should be minimum. So we only use the force necessary, never more force than is necessary in doing our practice, daily life practice and sitting practice. And so there's a real, um, it's, there's a real art to seeing how, learning how to respond in any moment. And so like the first suggested response, this is from Yanapanika Terra's article, is just like flashing their attention. So there we are sitting, let's say, let's use the example of sitting meditation. So there we are in sitting meditation, and we're just maybe resting in the sound of silence, or resting in the movement of the breath in the body, or resting in the experience of the body sitting, or resting in the experience of hearing sounds of the birds. So the mind is resting, meaning it's just allowing the activity, to some degree, just allowing the activity to come and go. And it may have a particular focus for its attention, but it's not gripping that breath or that sound of the bird or the sound of silence. It's resting, allowing the experience to be known, to rise and pass and rise and pass. And then a disturbance arises. And so the first way to practice is we have to, we don't want to ignore that disturbance that's come up in the mind. But we also don't want there's sort of a, like when all things are equal, the mind chooses seclusion. It chooses not to go out, not to go away, unless it needs to. So the first, the first response is just like to flash their attention onto the disturbance, just to, just to as a way of acknowledging, oh yes, this is here. This is like this. And is it almost as if to prove it's okay? Like it's like a, a flash of non-aversion. It's okay for this. This can't be other than it is now. This insolent fly, this disturbing memory, this strange unknown sound. This is this. So it's like that flash of, of course, so include this. Of course. But we don't investigate it. We don't try to figure it out. We don't even like. Uh, basically, we don't. We don't need to uh, give it any energy. We just acknowledge it with their attention, and then we come back. And often, but not, but certainly not always, as you know so well. But often. Just think about how many disturbances didn't hang around in our minds, thankfully. 
So a lot of those disturbances, that's all they require. It's just an acknowledgement. Yep, this is here. And we come back, and those things arose into the mind, into the moment, but without a lot of momentum. So they very quickly fall away anyway. That's why we don't want to initially investigate them, because they may not be around long enough. We may not need to have any more of a relationship with them than just that flash. Oh, yes, here you are. Welcome. So if that's if that flash of their attention isn't enough, then we basically repeat. So then we're just flashing awareness. But in a way, we're not investigating even in the second stage. But what we're doing is we're just, we just keep acknowledging, oh, you're still here. Yep, you're still here. Okay. And we come back, and then we flash. We come back, rest. We recognize it's still there. And so the flashing, this sort of repeated flashing, is like a uh, kind of ongoing acknowledgement that I'm not averse because I'm willing to recognize that you're there. You're here. You're here. Come back. And you're here. And come back. And like a lot of times we'll complain, oh, I keep getting dragged away. And then I come. But that's that dance of sort of coming back to the moment, coming back to the space of the mind, coming back to the breath, and then noticing, and then coming back, and then noticing. That doesn't have to be a problem. And that can be, we can have a, a profound continuity of present moment attention. It's just that the object is changing, but the the mindfulness at the present moment isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily need to be interrupted. And the image that's used here, um, both in the suttas and then Nyanapanika Terra sort of expands on it, is of uh, like uh, you know, or he quotes Shanti Deva about how you would how you should deal with a fool, you know, like if if somebody comes around and starts trying to convince you of their political views, which happens every once in a while, and you think they're a fool, <laughs> you, uh, Shanti Deva's advice, Shanti Deva, you might remember, is a, uh, one of the more famous Buddhist monks from long ago, from India, and uh, <clears throat> wrote a couple of beautiful treatises, did I say a plural treatise? Treatises? on uh, just different aspects of practice, including one called The Guide for the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And I think this is where this is from. Um, if one cannot avoid them, one should treat them with the indifferent politeness of a gentleman. I don't know how that actually was said, you know, from their particular cultural point of view, but you can kind of get a sense of, like, uh, you know, you understand that these are just what they are. But but you also understand that to sort of provoke them isn't going to help, you know, or to sort of use your power over them isn't going to help. Because they... Uh, remember, the thing about the defilements, all of these tendencies of the mind that move us away from an open, loving wise relationship with experience that they they require they uh, grow dependent on identification so the more we identify with them the more power they have the more real they become if we don't identify them with them they lose their power so that's why the first strategy is just to flash awareness to acknowledge we're basically if we don't flash awareness, there's the chance that we're not seeing them because we're afraid of them, which gives them power. So we have to let them touch us. We have to be undefended. So that's why we open to them. Oh, yes, here you are. Fine. And then that gentleman, gentlemanly or ladyly <laughs> way of relating, you know, is to, to understand that whether it's here, it doesn't seem to be going away. But, you know, we live in two different worlds, you and I. (laughs) (laughs) 
But there's there is a little bit of there is a little bit of that. It's like this. It was really helpful for me to read this again because it, it reminded it helped me correct some just my own practice a little bit too. Which is we can uh, we can be a little bit like uh, what's the phrase Dra- uh, drama queens in that like we like our stuff we like our uh, things that we get caught in we like just like sort of sniffing around the poop <laughs> oh yeah it's still poop <laughs> yep still poop still stinks <laughs> and uh, as long as when that stuff as long as there's this liking to return like pick our scabs touch our wounds those wounds have renewed life so this is this is what seclusion means in Buddhism it's not seclusion from the world it's seclusion we're learning to seclude ourselves from our self-centered dramas unless we can't and then we practice insight with the dramas with the self-centered stories so that's the third strategy basically is to sort of say okay it's not going away so this is my practice this is my meditation I'm now meditating on this visitor whatever it might be it might be knee pain and then my reaction or resentment about the knee pain having knee pain it might be a painful memory or a memory and then my reaction to the memory it might be the weather and my reaction to the weather so then we we include that and now we've really let go of our earlier anchor for the practice because at this point that's a hindrance wanting to get back to the breath is called attachment at this point or wanting to be with the space of the mind back to that spacious light whatever buoyant feeling that's attachment now because now there's this and this it's like um, more than anything our practice is about our willingness to relate to what's real and this is what's real now it's like this maybe I'll mention one other point that Yana um, Panikatera mentions here with the second strategy where we're doing that repeated flashing that even though it's an including like with each flash with each opening of the heart and and acknowledgement that this is how it is there's also a kind of no or sort of justness I like that word adding the word just you know it's just pain it's just annoyance it's just judgment it's just comparing mind and there's a little no there the no is and it doesn't have to be anything else it doesn't have to be more than this so it's like we're still um, it's like a, there's a stern parent here that's sort of like we're, we're using wisdom a little bit as a sword like no no just this it's just this this is just pain this is just not liking pain it's just that it's just the not liking of pain there's pain and not liking it's just that so it's a um, kind of a imposition of wisdom over and over again clarifying the situation now we'll go on to the third This method of transforming dis- disturbances to meditation, disturbances to meditation into objects of meditation, as simple as it is ingenious, may be regarded as the culmination of the nonviolent procedure. It is a device very characteristic of the spirit of Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, to make use of all the experiences as aids on the path. In that way, enemies are turned into friends. For all these disturbances and antagonistic forces become our teachers, and teachers 
whoever they may be, should be regarded as friends. And so you can, we can even use that as a kind of label. You know, we can say that not, not in a sarcastic way, but you know, welcome friend. Like, what, what is there to learn here? I mean, imagine if we had that attitude every time something difficult happened on this retreat. You know, oh, welcome friend. Or we came to the retreat without expectations, except the expectation that things would show up, experiences would show up, and they would be our teachers. And so if our experiences that showed up were very bland and ordinary, then those ordinary experiences are a teacher like, can ordinary an ordinary mindfulness retreat be okay? Or if it's extraordinary stuff, like really amazing insights or really disturbing experiences, well, they can be our teachers too. Remember that image of I mentioned last night of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, or maybe it was uh, Thursday night. I forget now. When confronted by Mara, you know that eventually at the end he he touched the earth and uh, sort of asked for Mother Nature's support, acknowledgement that he had a right to be there. And uh, this image, <clears throat> it's also useful in terms of this quality of mindfulness. You know, it's uh, it has a protecting, you know, w- one aspect of love or non-aversion uh, is this protecting force, again, like a, a, par- a parental per- protecting force. And uh, so mindfulness can have that too when we're feeling afflicted by our lives, by experience. Mindfulness can sort of have this quality of not yielding, not, not yielding, not giving into the drama. And even though in a way, in a kind of metaphorical way, drama may be raging all around us, like all kinds of enticing stories to get drawn into behind us, to the side, in front of us, above and below. It's that mindfulness has this sort of, this loving aspect of mindfulness really protects us. It's like I, I, I have a right to be in this space. I have a right to be protected. And again, it's it's like seeing the difference between um, sort of a foolishness of, of sometimes we think that mindfulness or practice is about just trusting everything. But we're not trusting the defilements. We're not trusting the tendency of my mind to dwell in anger. I don't trust that at all, because <laughs> I know from so many experiences that that leads directly to hell. You know, so we're not trusting everything. What we're trusting is that we can, that this heart can be open in the middle of this, these storms when it's stormy, and it can be open in the middle of beauty when it's beautiful, without being disturbed by either. And you can imagine, you know, it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult balance. Like it's a real art. And uh, the Nyanapanikatera has this uh, example from ancient India, where uh, 
students who were learning surgery, the way they would learn is they would float uh, some kind of a leaf, like a palm leaf on water. You know how a leaf can just rest on the surface tension of the water? And then they would have to make an incision along the leaf without breaking the surface tension and without just uh, cutting the middle part of the leaf without slicing the whole thing in half. And that's, uh, he uses that example. That, that example has been used in some of the ancient Buddhist texts as the kind of delicacy and learning to work with the mind in this way. That if we, if we don't make an effort, nothing happens. If we make too much of an effort, we create a mess. And so, uh, one of the the real uh, power here, like that, going back to that image about like how to how to be protected, how not to be drawn into the stories, but also not averse to them. So all the different difficult experiences that arise arise for us, we're in this sort of delicate position where we don't want to practice denial, we don't want to practice aversion, but we don't want to be swept away. And the basic uh, force that protects us is this principle that two things can't coexist, two opposite things can't coexist in the mind. So, in a, in a sense, mindfulness is the opposite of delusion, or delusion meaning not seeing things clearly. So all of these, getting lost in any of these dramas, requires confusion, not seeing things clearly. So as long as we maintain mindfulness, we are protected. Right in the middle of the most afflictive experiences, inner and outer, so not just outer experiences, but also inner experience, like strong emotions, difficult memories arising, if the mindfulness is maintained, there's nothing to be afraid of. But as soon as the mindfulness wavers, we're likely to be very quickly swept away. And I'm sure many of you have noticed that experience. So we can just remember that it's not this kind of toughness that protects us. It's the continuity of mindfulness that protects us. It's the remembering to be mindful, remembering this possibility of bare attention. They're keeping things really simple. It's just this, it's just this, it's just this. So I want to spend a few more minutes um, talking about the next aspect that Nyanapanika Tara talks about in this four which is about the stillness, the capacity for stopping, stilling, slowing down the mind. Or we could say the movement towards tranquility. Remember uh, last night I talked that a moment of mindfulness strips away <clears throat> the story from the present moment experience. And if the story is there, it's just thoughts being known. So the content it, it, the content loses its power. Normally, the content of our thoughts have a lot of power over us. Like, if you had thoughts, regular thoughts during the day that you're having a great retreat or you're having a bad retreat, the content of those thoughts help create your reality. And actually, they sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you think you're having a bad retreat, you'll start having a bad retreat. <laughs> if you think you're having a great retreat, you'll start having a good retreat, to some degree. So, going back to that point that I made then, so the tidying, tidying up part of mindfulness practice, it's really uh, diffusing the power of the content of our thoughts. So thoughts are just thoughts. So everything gets really simple. There's thoughts, there's sounds, there's smells, there's tastes, there's touches, there's sights. Boy, that's pretty simple. I mean, considering how amazingly complicated our worlds 
seem or lives seem. Actually, they're just these six things being known in different combinations. That's it. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, thoughts. The whole universe is nothing more than those six things. All of this, of course, is happening in our mind. And the universe seems a little bit bigger than that. But that's just because we're deluded by the content of these six things. We have this whole world because we're not seeing these six things as they actually are. So this is telling us that this is going to help us with tranquility or the stillness as a, the third aspect of mindfulness. One of the aspects of, of not being confused by the content of our thoughts is all of a sudden the concept of time doesn't exist anymore. The concept of time, of past, present, and future, only exists when we're under the influence of our thoughts. As soon as thoughts are just thoughts, which is how it is with mindfulness, thoughts are just thoughts, then time doesn't exist. There's just now. And anything about the future, well, that's just a thought. Anything about the past is just a thought. And again, this isn't some trick. Like this is this gives this is a and many of you have heard me say this or heard other people say this, but it gives us a real sense of the deluding power of our thinking mind, because we are so sure there's a past and a future, right? Does it, I mean it, not just sure intellectually, but it really we would like that a lot of money if we had it <laughs> that there's a past and a future, that it exists. The past, future exists as a real thing. But it doesn't exist. They're just thoughts. The future exists only as thoughts in the mind. And the past exists only as thoughts in the mind. Now, those thoughts are happening now if they're there. And I know we could argue about this, but when you really look, you'll see the past is just thoughts. Now, maybe on some level there's a past, that, but it's not the past we know. The past we know is just the thought now. The future that we know is just the thought now that we're having. So, um, one of the aspects of mindfulness practice that's related, I mean, they're all, all, all of the different aspects are related, that is this uh, capacity we have for stillness. And the stillness really relates to the nowness. And I mentioned this, I think, I forget when, about the, the space of the mind and the activity of the mind. And one of the things that mindfulness allows us to do is stop. Like... Uh, in terms of our actions, there's that famous talk the Buddha gave to his son Rahula, where he, he suggested that Rahula reflect before he does anything, while he's doing anything, and after he's done something, to reflect whether it's skillful or not, whether it's something he's about to say or something he's about to do or something even he's about to think. He should reflect, is this going to be harmful or non-harmful for me and others? Is what I'm doing right now harmful or not harmful? Is what I did in the past harmful or not harmful? Every time we reflect like that, there's a kind of stopping. Like instead of just being swept away, one thing leading to another, one thought leading to another, mindfulness has this capacity to sort of put a little gap where we're reflecting, where we're actually, that's that moment of discerning. So instead of being a robot or being a kind of a conditioned phenomena, this is what takes us out of a deterministic cycle, is that we have this capacity to be aware, to be mindful, mindfully aware. And in that moment of being mindfully aware, we, we are mindfully aware of the force of cause and effect, like 
what the momentum, where the momentum's leading. And because we can be mindfully aware of that, we can be mindfully aware of whether that next unfolding, that next arising, is going in a skillful or unskillful direction. And if it's going in an unskillful direction, we have the possibility of just being with the feeling of that impulse to go there, but not going there. And then we can choose to go somewhere else that's less well-greased, but through the capacity we have to feel the impulse to say something that's unskillful, but to not say it anyway. So we feel the impulse, but we restrain ourselves. And then we find something else to say that doesn't have much of an impulse, but there's at least enough of an impulse that it's there, and we speak that, or maybe we don't speak anything. <coughs> so this is this is one of the the real advantages of this this aspect of mindfulness that can, in a sense, freeze. It sort of creates a gap in what would otherwise be a blind unfolding of our lives. And we see that, you know, we see that in our friends at times. You know, that they're just acting out their conditioning. Or we see that, I see that with my cat a lot. That, and it's, it's really poignant to see, like, uh, her just do her thing. You know, when it, you know, it's like, instead of just waiting for her dinner to be served, it's like she has some anxiety for a half an hour before she gets fed. You know, and if we just started feeding her earlier, she would just get that anxiety half an hour earlier. <laughs> I mean, we're not so different, but I tend to notice my cat more than I notice myself. Just like now, on, you know, in different ways, we're anticipating not being on retreat. I mean, how much of our life are we anticipating what's coming next? To what end? So the stopping, this capacity we have to be mindful, it's sort of we see the force of our habit and we have that possibility of discerning its skillfulness or unskillfulness and making a different choice if it's unskillful. Or just letting it carry on if it's skillful. And it, I'm not talking about like putting the brakes and we, you know, we take a 15-minute time out to figure things out. This happens in less than a second. It's just like a, the gap of mindfulness, that moment of reflection is... Uh, it's just happening in conjunction with living our lives. It's not like... Uh, I mean, at first it might feel a little awkward. You know, we might take a breath and check in what's going on. But it gets quicker and quicker. And then in terms of tranquility practice, just calming the mind, it's the same thing, except it's happening much more internally instead of our interactions in the world where we're reflecting. Basically, we're doing that reflection in terms of all the things that arise in the mind. So we're sitting there, resting with the experience of the breath, and the mind is inclined to think about something or inclined to pay attention to something, you know, the person that irritates us. But because mindfulness puts a little gap there, we see, it's basically we're seeing the about-to moment or we're seeing the intention in the mind. About to indulge in looking at somebody, which is going to lead to, you know, feelings of lust or feelings of aversion or disgust or, you know, whatever the particular response is to that person. And so we see that about to moment, that intention. Before we look, we see the intention to look. And we discern... That's not helpful. And so we feel the force of that intention without acting it out. That's how samadhi, that's how concentration deepens in practice. People who are able to really become still in their meditation, it's not that they have fewer impulses than the other person. It's just that they are mindful of the impulse. They're mindful of the intention for the mind to move away. And they see that intention, and they feel that intention, and then it goes away. But if we act on the intention and start to indulge, and then that leads to the next thought, 
then it's much harder to come back. But in that first moment, it's actually not that hard. So if we just do a little opening to that intention for some part of a second, that's how as long as that intention is there. And then it goes away. So if we don't indulge in the intention, if we don't follow through with it, it will go away very quickly. Because we haven't really established that force in the mind yet. It's just a little about to moment. And that's the key with mindfulness, is if we catch it early, we can really establish tranquility. So this is why the Buddha emphasizes vigilance or heedfulness. This is what he means. It's not a tightness. It's like um, we're just dealing with, instead of um, dealing with the mind in our lives after we've created a lot of mistakes and messes and having to clean up the mess, it's like we're just bringing everything into the present moment. And so it's like there's potential wars, but they're never going to get there because we catch it earlier, you know, and huge mistakes, you know, that, you know, would lead to our divorce or to our families falling apart. But we don't go there because we catch it right at the beginning. And we just know that's that does not need any watering. You know, that just, that a very simple, that's just, that goes directly to hell. Do not pass go. <laughs> you know, just because, and then that's, that sort of scene, that's, that's called basic wisdom, is being able to discern the skillfulness and unskillfulness of these little inclinations, these little impulses in the mind. And the thing is, they're seemingly, they're, they seem so small and insignificant, that's delusion. Because <laughs> everything big started small, right? Everything big started small. Like, all this greediness, you know, that leads to wars, it starts small. Everything starts small. But the tendency of our minds, of the deluded mind, is proliferation. And so things get big. Maybe just the final thought about this. Uh, he makes a couple more points, but the, the last point he makes, the last aspect of mindfulness is, is this directness of vision or clarity. And this is sort of the classic feature of mindfulness is this clear seeing that it supports insight. And often, most often in Theravada Buddhism, insight is either in terms of seeing the Four Noble Truths or seeing the three characteristics. And really, the three characteristics include the Four Noble Truths. So I'll just talk about these as a, a way of seeing how mindfulness uproots. Because that, that last way I talked about, where we're being really vigilant and catching the impulses before they get acted on, that's, that's, that's exhausting, that vigilance. So, that's not a resting place. The resting place is when we have uprooted the tendency to be unskillful, to some degree at least. And then we can really rest, because the, in, the impulse to be unskillful, to be greedy or aversive, isn't coming up very often, if at all. So what actually uproots those tendencies, so we don't have to be, not that, well, I don't want to, I don't know whether we, Ultimately, being vigilant isn't hard to do either, so I just want to make that point, but I'm not there yet. But initially, it is, it is stressful to be vigilant, and so we want deeper insight. And the deeper insight is seeing the three characteristics. It's seeing more deeply in little glimpses or sometimes in big gulps the truth of impermanence, the flux of all things, mental, internal things, external things, Everything is in flux. And when something is in flux, that means it isn't a thing. It's a process. As a process, it doesn't actually exist in the way that we 
imagine things exist. When we see impermanence deeply, we let go. That's that uprooting I'm talking about. When we see that things can't be grasped, nothing can be grasped, the mind lets go. Related to that, impermanence is also seeing the unsatisfactoriness of all things, even pleasant things. Because of the inconstancy of life, of all things in life, mental, physical, they're fundamentally unsatisfying for a self. Right? So these, these three characteristics, they're relative truths. They're truths from the point of view of a self. Okay, they're not meant to be cosmological or metaphysical truths. They're meant to be uh, describe how insight arises. And then the third gateway, these are like gateways. So different personalities will be naturally, uh, naturally tend to have insight in one of these three areas. They're really different aspects of the same insight. The third is seeing the conditionality or the impersonal quality of all things. Because things are conditional, they arise and pass away due to causes and conditions, there isn't anybody behind anything. So that may be a gateway, seeing the unsatisfactoriness of all things, seeing the impermanence of all things. Now, it sounds a little grim, (laughs) but all three of these insights lead to one thing and one thing only, which is why we need to see them. So you can just use your imagination in imagining seeing everything as conditional and impersonal or as unsatisfactory or as inconstant, ungraspable. You see, even just imagining how we kind of let go. That the the ego, the self-centered dramas lose sustenance because all of that self-centered force depends on there being constancy and some satisfaction and that it's personal. <laughs> like, I get the pleasure. And without those the three things, the sense of a self doesn't hold up. It falls away. And that's the piece of not operating from a sense of self. And, you know, in Buddhism, we don't, they don't usually talk too much about that because the self just gets identified with that, whatever we talk about. So if we dress it up and call it, you know, enlightenment even, then as a self, I can kind of get idealistic about enlightenment. I would really, and that becomes a self-project, you know, to get enlightenment. So we don't, we normally, uh, the Buddha normally talked about it in the negative, cessation. So Nibbana, Nirvana, means the cessation of the stress of these little about-tos, you know, where the sense of self is taking birth by being the one who wants to be done with this retreat or being the one who wants to go to bed tonight or being the one, you know, whatever the, that about-to moment is for us, where we take rebirth as the person who... and then you just fill in the blank. And so mindfulness has the capacity to reveal these three characteristics. Insight into any of these three characteristics of existence leads to relinquishment. The heart lets go of its identification with all of these old habit energies to take things personally, to try to get, to try to get rid of. And what's what's replaced is a sense of peace or stillness or space that allows everything to come and go, including our personality. And that's important because people hear this and they think they're going to become some flat blob. You know, you can't even get a word out of, speak to me, Mark. (laughs) 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 It's all empty. That's all I can say. (laughs) But see, that, that kind of insight doesn't put brakes on anything. It doesn't get identified, but it doesn't get, it isn't, By not being identified, it's also not afraid of activity either. It's not for or against activity. So then we literally, an enlightened being, as I imagine it, is literally just a force of nature as opposed to a self. Their personality is just a force of nature. 
they're acting in the world as nature. Not just like that weather system, you know, that, that now has changed. That that was a force of nature. And it, in our somehow magical ignorance, we have created something else, you know, which we call self. And it exists as long as we are in that bubble. And the question, how do we pop that bubble? And now we have the way, right? To, like, this is that, uh, that amazing lever that can do amazing things. Awareness is simple, bare, honest, open, loving stillness of the mind that sees things as they are. It changes everything. And the thing is, we just got to keep like putting money in the bank, keep showing up to do our daily sit or coming on retreats as often as we can, reestablishing a sense of presence as we go through the day, finding little gimmicks that help us to remember just to be present. And it really starts to build as a force in our lives. It kind of takes over. And sometimes we regret it. <laughs> if only I could just be oblivious, <laughs> you know, and kind of rest in my bad habits. Instead, you know, we go to our bad habits, and there we are. There's this sort of like <laughs> right awareness. Like, are you really here? <laughs> Honey, do you really want to do this? <laughs> just go away. <laughs> So let's uh, let go of the words and just sit for a few minutes before our walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.